From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, March 22nd. I'm Lisa Mullins in Boston. The suspected killer in Toulouse, France, is dead after a 32-hour siege. French authorities say they're still investigating whether Mohamed Marat acted alone or not. In either case, the gunman leaves behind a frightening scenario. If you are a wannabe terrorist, when you see that one guy using a 45 automatic can hold the world's attention for three days, you say, hmm, I could do that too. Assessing France's terrorism threat coming up on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. And by WGBH, producer of Frontline, presenting Murdoch's Scandal. The powerful media mogul's reputation, future, and dynasty are in peril, resulting from business practices in his media empire. Tuesday, March 27th at 10, 9 central on PBS. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The standoff in Toulouse, France, came to a violent end this morning. Later in the day, France's interior minister described what happened. At 10.30, hand grenades were thrown into the apartment. There was no reaction from within. Then the officers took the decision to go in. They entered through the door and windows. When we started searching the bathroom with video equipment, the killer stormed out, shooting wildly. And in the end, Mohamed Mehrad jumped out of the window, holding the gun while still shooting. He was found dead on the ground. He was dead on the ground with a gunshot wound to his head. Three policemen were wounded in this morning's firefight. Mohamed Marat was wanted for the killing of three French paratroopers, a rabbi, and three Jewish children, in three separate shootings since March 11th. All were in and around the city of Toulouse. During a 32-hour siege, the gunman reportedly boasted of the killings to police, and he said he hoped to bring France to its knees. Marat is said to have been inspired by al-Qaeda, and he'd purportedly been to Afghanistan for training. French investigators say they're still looking into the possibility that Marat had accomplices. Christopher Dickey is Paris bureau chief and Middle East editor for Newsweek and for The Daily Beast. He says it's not yet clear whether Marat acted alone. The police are telling the story, and his former lawyer is telling the story, that he was just a run-of-the-mill hooligan, a young kid who was in all kinds of trouble. I think he was taken before the juvenile court 15 times. The last time, as recently as February, when he was caught driving a motor scooter without a license. And over time, he supposedly indoctrinated himself uh, from the Internet and using CD-ROMs probably and DVDs and other sources uh, to build up his anger Uh, about the oppression of Muslims, uh, whether in the Palestinian territories or in Iraq or in Afghanistan and Pakistan. All of that is pretty standard for what they call sort of self-radicalizing jihadis. The problem with his story is that his brother, his older brother, was implicated in a network Uh, that was sending people from Europe to Iraq to fight in the jihad against the Americans around 2007. And there are all these connections that his family has that suggest 
that he may have been more than just a lone self-radicalizing type. And then, of course, there are his travels. He went to Afghanistan in 2010, and he went back to Afghanistan and Pakistan in 2011. Now, there again, the, the French authorities are saying, well, you know, he wasn't really important, and he was just doing this on his own. But that seems uh, fairly doubtful. The real question is, why didn't they notice him? The second time he went, supposedly he had a visa, and he was going to find a wife. But it's not exactly normal for uh, young Frenchmen of Algerian descent to go looking for their wives in Afghanistan or Pakistan. What else do you know about this young man that you think is especially pertinent? I think what's striking about him is how cool and disciplined he was. This is a guy who was supposedly a juvenile delinquent. And yet when it came to his murder spree, it was very well planned. The targets were very carefully chosen. The way it was carried out, first killing uh, soldiers, uh, then killing people at the Jewish school, including three children, shot at point-blank range uh, with a gun right up against them. You know, that takes a level of sort of horrifying cool to carry out. People are screaming, they're running, and you're just shooting. I mean, he was probably a psychopath, we could say, but he was not acting like a man out of control. He was acting like a man very much in control. And I think that's quite frightening. If we're looking then to determine what kind of a threat he was, how do we dissect whether or not he could have been a jihadi in the way that we think of, of possible terrorists and those who could do great destruction, or the others who you say are more kind of self-proclaimed jihadis and maybe dilettantes, because all jihadis are not created equal. Well, no, that's right. And what we've seen over the years is that there used to be a fairly clear division between what's called al-Qaeda core, which we identify with Ayman Zawahri now or Osama bin Laden before. And that was an organization that was committed to carrying out truly apocalyptic terrorist attacks, 9-11 being the most obvious. Then you had another, other groups, now al-Shabaab in Somalia, al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in North Africa, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula in Yemen, and still, still others, that identify with the ideology uh, of, uh, of al-Qaeda, if you will, but run more or less independently. The problem is that the ideas put forth by these people can be picked up by anyone. And if there are still training facilities here and there, and it seems that uh, this, the man in Toulouse may have gone to one of those training facilities last year uh, in Pakistan, in Waziristan, then people can learn how to shoot. In some cases, they can learn how to make bombs. And then they may have a very low profile or no profile when they go back to their home country. Let's look at the bigger picture then. How appropriate and uh, how justifiable is it for... France's president, Nicolas Sarkozy, to do what he especially is doing today. Let's look at the quote right now that he issued today. He said, from now on, any person who habitually consults websites that advocate terrorism or that call for hatred and violence will be criminally punished. This was in a, a televised address he gave after this suspect was well, that is almost shot. certainly That is almost certainly self-defeating from an intelligence point of view. Those websites are pretty easy to monitor. They are one of the best windows that intelligence organizations have into uh, jihadi organizations and particularly into groups, sort of loosely affiliated groups that include self-radicalizing jihadis. 
you want those sites to stay open, ironically. I mean, I was just talking to a very senior intelligence official who was saying, you know, Facebook is the best tool we've got fighting against these, especially these self-radicalized types. But, because, isn't, but isn't Facebook one of the best tools that the radicalized types have as well? It's a toss-up, I suppose. But if you cut them off from this kind of outlet, they probably will find others. But what will happen is that the intelligence services will not be able to find them. <laughs> so it is a kind of a self-defeating uh, uh, policy. So how would you gauge then the, the terrorist threat in France now? Yeah, I mean, I think putting it simply, the threat that's posed is that it's much harder to identify specific organizations that are promoting jihadist terrorism and carrying it out. But the spread of random, what seem to be almost random acts of jihadist terrorism is likely to increase. If you are a wannabe jihadist or terrorist, when you see that one guy using a 45 automatic can hold the world's attention for three days, you say, hmm, I could do that too. And that's the kind of thing that scares the hell out of law enforcement. Christopher Dickey, Paris Bureau Chief and Middle East Editor for Newsweek and The Daily Beast. Thank you. Sure. We turn to China now, where the Justice Ministry came up with a new rule this week. New lawyers have to take a pledge of loyalty to the Communist Party if they want to get a license to practice law. That announcement comes at a tense time. China's just months away from a transition in leadership, and China's Internet is buzzing with rumors of fierce infighting among the country's political elite. Here's the world's Mary Kay Magstead in Beijing. The pledge Chinese lawyers are now supposed to take includes promising to be faithful to the motherland and the people and to uphold the leadership of the Chinese Communist Party and socialist system. One little problem, says lawyer Mo Xiaoping, who's known for taking on sensitive human rights cases many other lawyers won't touch. He says it's against the Constitution. A lawyer's supposed to be loyal to the law and to the country not to a single political party. But in China, the Communist Party has made sure over its 60-plus years in power that there's a blurring of the line between party, country, law, and government. Well, lawyers are not independent in the first place. Nicholas Bakelin is the Hong Kong-based China researcher for Human Rights Watch. He says Chinese lawyers are statutorily under the control of the Ministry of Justice, and many are already party members. But... It is interesting to see that the government is ready to dispense with the fiction that actually doesn't play a direct role in the administration of justice. The facade that it usually likes to put up is abandoned. This comes at a moment when the party seems to be tightening up on multiple fronts. A once-per-decade leadership transition is looming, and the word from on high is that both the judiciary and the media should serve the party, not the government, not the country. The party. The problem with the requirement to abide by party discipline is that what the party considers to be its interests very often are things that go against people's interests. If they try to challenge the government or to have their rights respected, the party will uh, define this as, as being a challenge that should be suppressed in the name of maintaining social stability. The party already views many civil rights lawyers as acting against the interests of the party. Last year, several were detained, tortured, threatened, and released. 
a couple I've interviewed in the past, who used to be outspoken about the need for an independent judiciary and other political reforms, declined to talk to me today. They said they're still under too much pressure. Mo Xiaoping has made a career of taking on sensitive human rights cases, but knowing when to tack to avoid the same fate. Now, faced with the new regulation to take a vow of loyalty to the party, he shrugs. He says, look, I disagree with it. But in the end, this is one regulation from one department. It's not a law. They've said things like this in the past, and I've just kept going. And that's what I'll do now. Mo says it's not surprising to him that the party's trying to control possible risks before the leadership transition this autumn. One of the men long expected to step into a top slot has now been relieved of his post and is under investigation. That's Bo Xilai, former party chief of Chongqing. And the party wants to make sure it can count on the courts, the judges, and the lawyers to find guilty those whom the party considers a problem and to leave alone those the party wants left alone. That's more or less worked up until now. But the economy is slowing and social tension rising. With half a billion Chinese online sharing grievances and rumors, lots of rumors since Bo Xilai was sacked, the party may yet discover that a legal system that serves the party over the people is like a pressure cooker with no release valve. For The World, I'm Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. You can read Mary Kay's blog post about lawyers and the Communist Party. It's at theworld.org. What life's like for a Russian rocker no longer underground, coming up on PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, helping inspire the next generation of healthcare innovators through Science Matters, a hands-on science guide for the entire family. Science Matters, available to classrooms and families at MedtronicFoundation.org. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. Pope Benedict XVI leaves for Mexico tomorrow. This weekend, he'll greet followers and celebrate Mass in the conservative state of Guanajuato. Think of it as Mexico's Bible Belt. The Pope is not going, though, to Mexico City, a place his predecessor visited multiple times. The Vatican says that's to avoid the capital's high altitude and smog. Others say the real reasons are the laws that make abortion and gay marriage legal in Mexico City. Monica Campbell reports. Among the fanfare, the Pope will reiterate his devotion to Mexico, the world's second largest Catholic country. But in Mexico, there are also growing splits between Catholics and the Vatican's teachings. On a recent morning in a budget hotel room in Mexico City, I met a woman trying to keep her faith while making choices that the Pope rejects. My name is Laura Cruz, and I live in Oaxaca, and I'm 25. Cruz, a sociologist, lives in Oaxaca in Mexico's rural south and accidentally got pregnant with her boyfriend. Not ready to become a mom, she faced a choice. Go underground in Oaxaca, where abortion is illegal and a botched job can mean a frantic trip to a hospital and risking jail time. Or she could take a six-hour bus ride to Mexico City, where abortion became legal in 2007. She struggled with her decision. I was thinking what the church is going to think, because the church tells you all the time that it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. In Mexico City, you have rights, more rights than in other cities. So I don't feel bad with my like Catholic part because I know what I did. It's the best option for me. Mexico City, with its new laws protecting abortion and gay marriage, is now a refuge for people like Cruz, 
And some believe that's why Pope Benedict XVI, who has condemned Mexico City's laws, will skip the capital, though the Vatican's official reason is the city's elevation and air quality. Elio Masferet is a religious scholar in Mexico City. The problem is very simple. In Mexico City, marriage between people of the same sex is legal, and so is abortion. It's evident that the Pope wouldn't come here because that would validate these legal changes in the country's capital. So he'll go to the state of Guanajuato, which is the state with the highest percentage of Catholics in the country, to support the political party there that rejects abortion and other changes. It's a critical year. Mexicans elect a new president in July, and the church has already issued, quote, pastoral guidelines, recommending that Mexicans reject politicians who accept Mexico City's liberal ways. Speaking near the Basilica in Mexico City, top-ranking Bishop Victor René Rodriguez defends the church. We're only expressing our point of view, and that's how we've been working with different groups of congressmen. Those are fighting words to some in Mexico City, even some Catholics. In a colonial-style house near one of Mexico City's oldest churches, there's the headquarters of Catholics for the Right to Decide. Director Maria Consuelo says her group is determined to promote controversial abortion and gay rights, and she knows priests and nuns who agree with them. But we, we know that it's difficult for them to speak, speak out because speaking out means punishment or means silence. Consuelo also knows that Mexico's Catholic authorities are pushing hard throughout the country to keep Mexico City's liberal influence at bay. The Catholic hierarchy is trying to gain again all the privileges they lost with these reforms. The Catholic Church's retaliation is working, Consuelo says. In a serious backlash to Mexico City's abortion law, at least 18 other states in Mexico have passed stricter bans on abortion, including personhood laws, mandating that life begins at conception. And that is a backlash. And the visit of the Pope at this moment adds to very, very critical situations. Catholic hardliners defend lobbying for the abortion bans. Again, Bishop Rodriguez. We don't believe in persecuting women, but what we do argue is that they think about the life about to be born. So Mexico City is a bubble and the epicenter of a religious battleground. Back in the Mexico City hotel room, Laura Cruz said that she's determined to pass out pamphlets about abortion back in Oaxaca. She resents that the church is trying to control what you're going to do with your body or that I have to come here to feel like a first-class citizen. With these divisions far from resolved, the split between the Vatican's teachings and the realities and desires among Mexico's rank-and-file Catholics will continue long after the Pope's departure. For The World, I'm Monica Campbell in Mexico City. Mexico City is still evaluating the damage from the 7.4 earthquake that struck on Tuesday. There was some damage, especially near the epicenter in the coastal state of Guerrero. But there were no deaths, and that is a huge difference from the quake that devastated Mexico City in 1985. That one killed some 10,000 people. Building codes have been strengthened in the capital since then, but the quake's location helped as well, according to Paul Caruso. He's a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey's National Earthquake Information Center. The reason it didn't cause much damage is because the the epicenter was in a a fairly remote area. In in the past, we've had large quakes 
far away from Mexico City that have killed people in Mexico City because a lot of Mexico City is built on fill, which is like sand and mud. And when seismic waves get into that stuff, they cause liquefaction where the ground just basically turns into a liquid and buildings can actually sink into the ground. In California, we're very concerned about that also because well, in the World Series quake in 1989, most of the damage was done in areas where buildings were built on soils that had been dredged out of the bay, and those soils liquefied during the quake. And I have a picture of, of a building where uh, the third floor of, a, of the building had crushed a car in San Francisco because the ground had liquefied under that building, and it just sank right into the ground. So if a large part of this equation in terms of the damage caused by earthquakes is dependent on, of course, where the epicenter is, the nature of the quake itself. How much do things like building codes matter then? They make a huge difference. In Chile, when we had that magnitude 8.8 quake back in 2010, because they were so well prepared because of their history of earthquakes, only 500 people were killed. And that's amazing to me. But then we look at Haiti, where 300,000 people died. Yes, um, only a magnitude 7 earthquake. But again, there were no building codes in Haiti, and that's why so many people were killed. So it's unusual that we have good news stories out of massive earthquakes. This was a pretty massive one, 7.4, in Mexico on Tuesday. But you're saying that past experience paid off. Yes. Uh, we were surprised also that, that no one was killed. But another thing that, that might have factored into that was the fact that um, on Tuesday they had scheduled an earthquake drill for Chiapas, and the earthquake drill was scheduled to start at noon. So they had just started their earthquake drill, and two minutes later at 12.02 was when this earthquake hit. So that could have had something to do with why there were no casualties. Paul Caruso is a geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey at the National Earthquake Information Center in Golden, Colorado. Thanks. Thanks, Lisa. Our GeoQuiz and more are coming up on PRI. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up, how to trace your family tree through DNA. This is kind of disgusting. I'm kind of out of spit. And later, a new picture of the distant universe and what it says about us. All the elements in our bodies were made in stars a long time ago in galaxies like the ones you see in this image. We'll check it out. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic, searching for runners who benefit from medical technology to run in the Medtronic Twin Cities Marathon. Application and information available at Medtronic.com slash Global Heroes. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH in Boston. Amateur genealogists have never had it so good. Ancestry websites now let you look up historical records online and pool information with your relatives. And these days, you can go beyond researching your family tree. You can have your DNA analyzed for more clues about your past. The world's Carol Zoll decided to see what she could find out from her genes. This is Carol Zoll interviewing Ray Zoll, my grandmother, or Bobby and Gideon. It used to be that if you wanted to find out about your family history, you had to sit down with your relatives and ask them what they knew. Now, Mrs. Zoll, could you tell us about your childhood? 
What can I tell you? What would you like to tell know? me about your life? That recording is from 1978, when I was 11 years old. Armed with my blue Panasonic tape recorder, I'd persuaded my grandmother, my booby, to grant me an interview. Where were you born? I was born in a small place. The name was called Kashchuki. What? Kashchuki. Kashchuki, it's a country, small place. What country was it near? That was uh, Russian Poland, Russian Poland. The location of my grandmother's village was confusing to me then, and it's still confusing now. She was born at the beginning of the 20th century in what is now Belarus, but was then Poland, or as she put it, Russian Poland. I've never been able to find her village, Kashuki, on a map, and I don't even know the names of the places my other relatives came from, which has made it hard to trace my roots. But 34 years later, I finally have a new lead on my family tree and it doesn't involve a tape recorder. That's me a few months ago, spitting into a plastic tube to provide a DNA sample. This is kind of disgusting. I'm kind of out of spit. Advances in the field of genomics have made it possible to use a person's DNA to find out where their ancestors may have come from. Recently, this kind of analysis has become available and affordable to the general public, and I've been wanting to try it ever since I heard about it. So, for about $200, I signed up with a company called 23andMe. It's 23 because we all have 23 pairs of chromosomes. And the next thing I knew, I was mailing my saliva to their lab. And that lab, the first step they take is to extract the DNA from the saliva. Joanna Mountain is Senior Director of Research at 23andMe. And then they take that DNA, and it gets cut up into little pieces, and they put the DNA onto what we call a chip. Human DNA is like a code made up of three billion letters. 23andMe doesn't look at all of those letters, or positions as they're called, just about a million of them. And those positions are chosen because they are particularly interesting because they vary from one person to another. It's those interesting positions that testing companies are using to find out all kinds of information from diseases you could be at risk for in the future to details about your past. The goal was to see what we could find out about ourselves. Harvard researcher Joe Pickrell is one of about a dozen people, all scientists or experts in genomics, who've made their genetic data available to the public on a website called Genomes Unzipped. While Joe and the other folks at Genomes Unzipped wanted to blog about issues surrounding genetic testing, Joe wasn't really expecting any big personal discoveries. And so what happened is actually the first day we put this data online, there's a guy who runs a, a website where he does ancestry analysis. And so he took all of our data and put it through his software. Pickrell had always thought his ancestors came from Ireland, Italy, and the U.K., but now there was something new in the mix. It turned out in his analysis that I had some Jewish ancestry. Pickrell was skeptical. I had never heard anything about Jewish ancestry in my family, and I had no idea that that was even a possibility. But he started running his own analyses, and the closer he looked, the more it seemed he did have Jewish roots. And then he spoke to his family. And in the end, it turns out that it's true. Pickrell found out that his great-grandfather was Jewish, He'd immigrated to the U.S. from Poland and married a Catholic woman, and they were worried about discrimination, so they decided to keep the Jewish ancestry secret. So... They just said that he was Irish. Now, in contrast to Joe, I've always known that my ancestors were Jewish. 
My entire family tree consists of European Jews, also known as Ashkenazi Jews. So I've always imagined my ancestors as people who spoke Yiddish and listened to music like this. But since Ashkenazis spent centuries wandering around Europe, living among different populations, I've always wondered, who else was in my family tree? After all, my mother's mother and all her siblings had red hair and blue eyes, and people always think my sister, a redhead with freckles, is Irish. So could I possibly have Celtic forebears? Maybe that would explain my connection to Scotland. I went there to study Celtic literature for a year and ended up staying for over a decade. Or maybe I have ancestors from some other European population. In theory, I could. But what actually showed up in my DNA analysis was a very Ashkenazi Jewish-looking genome. It looks like about two-thirds of it is traced back to Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, either in you know Russia, Poland, Belarus, and so on. Joanna Mountain of 23andMe went over my results with me. She explained that I share a lot of DNA segments with other people in their database whose known ancestry is also Ashkenazi Jewish. And that's how testing companies determine ancestry. They compare your genes to known reference populations to see which ones they resemble most. So this is where your Jewish ancestry really pops out. So that's all that DNA testing could tell me? That my ancestors were Jewish? All that spitting and $200 later, the big headline is something I already knew. In other words, I'm exactly who I always thought I was. It's still pretty amazing that a scientist can look at my DNA and see that I have ancestors from Belarus or Russia, just like my grandparents told me. But think how cool it would have been to have found something completely unexpected, like being Norwegian or Native American or even Scottish. Maybe I just wanted a surprise. Or at the very least, more answers to some of my questions. How did your uncle look? Did your uncle have a piano? And how did you look when you were little? I don't know about my great-great-uncle's piano, but among my test results, there was one piece of information to chew on, and that came from something called my mitochondrial DNA. And that piece of DNA is handed down from mother to child. So all of us can trace our maternal lineage back through the mother's, 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 mother. My mitochondrial DNA traces back to a woman who lived about 15,000 years ago in southwestern Europe. What's interesting is that this particular DNA isn't common among Ashkenazi Jews, which means that somewhere on my mother's line, there was probably a non-Jewish woman who married one of my Jewish ancestors. That's not so surprising, given the red hair and the history of Jews in Europe. But the fact that you can read that story in my genes takes it to a different level. And while I haven't learned anything especially new about where I came from, the science behind this is changing really fast. Sometime in the next decade, the cost of having your whole genome sequenced, all three billion letters of the code, will become affordable. And when that happens, says Harvard's Joe Pickrell, 
that'll change everything all over again. So what you'd be able to do is look at an individual's genome and say, all right, they have this mutation which arose in a particular village in the south of France, for example. And then you'd be able to say with nearly 100% certainty that you have some ancestor who came from that particular village. So now I'm waiting for the day when I can have my entire genome sequenced. But in the meantime, the most exciting thing I've learned about my ancestry is something that goes back a lot further than some European village. In fact, it goes all the way back to the Stone Age. New studies suggest that humans may have interbred with Neanderthals tens of thousands of years ago. And the 23andMe website recently added a feature that lets you see what percentage, if any, of your DNA comes from Neanderthals. So I clicked on the link and got my result. Somewhere up the line, many thousands of years before the red hair and the mitochondrial DNA were part of the story, before the dawn of recorded time or the existence of words like Europe or Ashkenazi, I was a twinkle in a Neanderthal's eye. For the world, I'm Carol Zoll. We have a lot for you on tracing your family roots through DNA, including how to choose a genetic testing company. And Carol has some great family photos on our website. It's all at theworld.org. And if you have had your DNA tested, tell us what you found out. That space odyssey music is the perfect backdrop for today's GeoQuiz. Just as scientists are working to map the microscopic human genome, astronomers are busy mapping out the vast reaches of the universe. There are billions of stars and galaxies out there to identify and study. We've posted one of the newest panoramic images taken of the distant universe. It's at theworld.org. The image comes from a European observatory in South America and its Vista Telescope. Well, we want you to name today the observatory and the country where it's located. Here's a clue. The facility is in the Atacama Desert. And while you ponder, let's turn to astronomer James Dunlop at the University of Edinburgh. Professor Dunlop, at first glance, when we see this image, it's a panoramic shot that looks pretty much like, I'm sorry to say, any other scattering of stars. So when you look at this image, what do you see? Okay, so there are stars in our galaxy in this image, but there are a few, maybe half a dozen bright white things in the picture you can see. And everything else in this image is way, way, way beyond our galaxy. Other galaxies just as big as our own Milky Way. I'm seeing these brighter stars, I guess you said they are, the ones with halos. Yes, they're halos, and the halos are just a distortion in the optics of the telescope because they're so bright. So from our point of view, they're simply in the way. We're looking way beyond that out to distant galaxies in the universe. So all the faint red objects in this image you could never see with your naked eye, and they're the things that we're after. And what are they? So... Quite often you hear astronomers talk about seeing things very far away, and I guess far away is exciting, but the reason we like far away is that light takes a finite amount of time to travel towards us, and so when you look further away, you actually see further back in time. And so the the faintest galaxies you can see here, you're actually looking back in time about 12 or 13 billion years, which is about 90% of the age of the universe. So what we're seeing here 
of some of the first galaxies that ever formed in the universe less than a billion years after the Big Bang. Um, so we're seeing galaxies in their youth, kind of wild and unruly youth, because they're very active, forming stars in the young universe. Could you ever get closer than that, not to ask for too much, but say to the first millennium or even the first century after the Big Bang? Uh, no. Uh, and the reason is... <laughs> the reason is no, no, it's a good question. So this image will get even fainter. Over the next four or five years, we're going to collect even more photons of light from the same patch of sky. So we may see some more distant galaxies than we can see in the present image. So that's quite exciting. But there will come a point where we won't see any more. And we already know that because there is a picture of the universe from even earlier, which is called the microwave background, taken with a different type of telescope. And that's an image of the universe when it was only about 200,000 years old. And we know from that image that the universe was very hot and, and full of gas at that time before any galaxies or stars had formed. A time beyond that, you can't actually see light. That's like coming into a bank of fog. So there's a definite limit to when we can see back, and we won't ever directly see back into that first 200, 100,000 years of the universe's history. So with what you can see in this image, uh, what what is the best lesson for you? I'm, I'm basically saying that we already know that the Big Bang, the very beginning of the universe, was a very hot time before any stars and galaxies formed. And then when the universe cooled down as it expanded, it entered a kind of dark age when the hot Big Bang was over. And then there was a time of, of really no light in the universe until the first stars and galaxies formed. Uh, and it's that epoch, sometimes termed first light in the universe, that we are trying to see with these deep images. And with this image, we're not quite there, but we're nearly seeing back to the time when the first stars and galaxies formed. And the observatory, which is the answer to our geo-quiz, is what? So the VISTA telescope is at the Paranal Observatory in Chile on an 8,000-foot mountain in the northern Chile in the Atacama Desert, one of the driest places on Earth. Dry, high, and dark. Dry, high, and dark, and well away from any city lights with a, a clear view of the night sky. As you look at this image, I just have one other question, Jim, and that is, what's it all about? <laughs> yeah. so You have 30 seconds to answer. Okay. Depending on the, your point of view, this sort of science is either absolutely useless because it's back in time and doesn't affect everyday life, or it's one of the most important things we as humans can be doing to try to get away from the, the trials of everyday life and try and get some understanding of, of where we came from. And this shows us part of our history. We have all been made, all the elements in our bodies were made in stars a long time ago in galaxies like the ones you see in this image. So this may seem far-fetched and far-flung, but in some ways it's personal. It's our beginning you're looking at here. James Dunlop from the Institute for Astronomy at the University of Edinburgh. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Looking back in time, next on the world, back in the USSR on PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is The World. The Russian rock band Mumi Troll was born in the 1980s. Back then, rock music was banned by the Soviet government. So Mumi Troll was relegated to playing the underground music scene in their home city of Vladivostok. When the Soviet Union collapsed, the band focused on expanding its fan base. By the late 1990s, it was one of Russia's biggest rock bands, and it still is. 
It's also got plenty of fans throughout the rest of Europe and Asia. Well, now Mumi Troll is breaking into the U.S. market. The band is releasing its first CD recorded entirely in English. Here's the first single, Fantastica. All that we dream comes true in this moment. I'll keep you warm and safe. Never let you go. Well, drink the Milky Way, lurking in the shadows, an endless harmony, orbits unexplored. And because of you, one word whispered, Fantastica, Fantastic, all that is true, tangled up together, our galaxy, the stars I gave to. Mumi Troll's all-English album is called Vladivostok. It was recorded in Los Angeles. That seems a long way from Vladivostok in Russia's Far East. But founder and band leader Ilya Lagutenko says it's not that far. It's actually not that, uh, uh, not quite a long way from Vladivostok. Uh, apparently, usually when people here like asking where is that, I just said you just you know you go to the beach in Santa Monica and you look on the horizon. Vladivostok is just right there. <laughs> you can see it from <laughs> so there. So we're basically sharing the same Pacific Ocean. And uh, for me, because Vladivostok, it's still like ten hours flight from Moscow. So so I always kind of felt a bit too far f- from what really going on in you know in capital in central russia but you know for us people who live too far and who's got ocean <laughs> that's right and yeah and some people asking like uh, what what's the best chinese place in 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 vladivostok and said you just drive to china it's a couple of hours and, <laughs> and you there <laughs> so i wonder what and, it's what it's like to be then a, a russian rock star in hollywood hills um, it's pretty amazing challenge because I'm kind of, you know, starting everything all over again. But I guess to be a young, unknown, green uh, band is what uh, keeping us as a, like like my bandmates uh, all together because we kind of feel <laughs> feel ourselves fresh all the time and uh, <laughs> keeps you hungry. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's good and it's good because you know yesterday we would play to sold out you know arena shows in Moscow, but you know this weekend we we going to play uh, Wiper Room little tiny venue on Sunset Strip for you know few hundred people and it's a good change is this humbling um energizing or what uh it, it is energizing it, it is what i guess what keeps a uh, band rolling because uh trying to communicate with your fans in in different surroundings in different languages it, it just you know constant challenge to to you know ourselves as to myself as a songwriter as a performer and to us as a musicians well, you've made a huge overture to your American fans by putting out this first album in English. I want to hear a little bit more of it right now. Track two, it's called Love Contraband. Tell us about this song. Uh, love Contraband is, uh, I, I guess, the love is a best product you can you can export and input, <laughs> as well as trade and... Uh, <laughs> I'm just going to let you go on with that. And give to each other. (laughs) Time to go home To crazy Moscow City Got to deliver something pretty I'm talking me and you Time to go home I'm the one my country misses 
decided to uh, release an album in English anyway? I guess all our um, international experience finally uh, finally transitioned into, into an album because uh, yes, we tried to introduce the band with our uh, Russian songs. Uh, yes, we've been to uh, different places, not only United States, like European countries and Asian countries. And um, we just realized that uh, the practical things that English actually become a universal language uh, for pop music so I guess uh, this album is more of a just trying to to say hello (laughs) (laughs) instead of (laughs) Здравствуйте Fallen, fallen, fallen love contemplating Feel no worries Jumping nowhere, the heart gives in, it would keep you safe as always. Your songs don't seem at least um, overtly political, but I wonder if, if you see any of them on this album in English as being political, and, and maybe a song that especially defines Russia as it is today in a, in a very interesting period. Yeah, in... in uh... <laughs> Let's put it this way. If you would uh, probably turn on the Russian radio, Russian television, you would hear t- a bit different music <laughs> and a different videos. But I'd like you judge Russia by mummy troll music. So if there was a, a new national anthem for Russia today and you had to take it off, what an amazing thing. You had to take it off this latest album, Vladivostok, which song would come closest to the Russian? Vladivostok vacation. (laughs) Welcome to my hometown. Ilya Lugatenko, thank you. So nice to meet you. Thank you, Lisa, and uh, see you soon. new album by Russian rock band Mumi Troll comes out next month. As Ilya mentioned there, the band's playing the Viper Room in L.A. this weekend. You can find out more about this and other gigs at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH in Boston, I'm Lisa Mullins, and we're back tomorrow.
The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the Plowshares Fund, investing in peace and security worldwide, plowshares.org. The National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art. And by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. And NASA, leading research on the Earth and its climate from the vantage point of space. PRI Public Radio International.